Welcome to the Construction Pals podcast, brought to you by Blue Tape, your source for the latest in the construction world. Hard hats off, headphones on, and let's get started. Hi, I'm Jason. I'm your host of the podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Blue Tape podcast. Here we bring together industry experts and community members to talk about all the important issues in the construction industry. This is a two-part podcast, so if you missed the first, we'll have a link beneath both of them, so you can go back, make sure you get all the good guidance and information. As I like to say, you know, knowledge is power, information is liberating, and education is the premise of progress uh, across the board. And that's certainly something we're going to be covering today uh, with Craig Webb, Web Analytics. And really, this is a discussion to look at the formation of the company, uh, reveal what's new and notable, uh, particularly around the LBM space, which is lumber yards, building material distributors, wholesalers, manufacturers, and service providers. And I'm, I'm curious to hear from uh, Craig a bit more in terms of expanding on his talents, because one thing we're all familiar with is that emotional intelligence, making connections, whether by spotting a technique employed from far away or, or internally inside your company can really help to prosper and find the right ways to pull things together. So, uh, Craig, it's an absolute pleasure to have you with us today. Looking forward to a dynamic discussion. I'd like to begin, if you could tell us a little bit more about yourself, and in particular, your experience in the industry, and maybe even a touch on some of your international experience, which I find uh, quite intriguing being someone that's lived in, in a multiple uh, countries myself. So the floor is yours, Craig. Thanks for being here. Well, I appreciate this opportunity to spend time with you, and it's uh, it's been a long, strange trip for me in construction supply uh, the past 15 years, uh, especially for a guy who grew up in Indiana uh, across the street from Notre Dame University and thought he was going to be a sports writer in life uh, or cover the city council in South Bend, uh, that sort of thing. Instead, I ended up in Rome, Italy in my first job. Uh, uh, I was in Belgium for the Wall Street Journal. I've given speeches in Japan and the like. But for the past 15 years of my life, I've focused on uh, construction supply and the people that those lumberyards and specialty dealers serve. Uh, from 2006 to about uh, 2018, I was editor-in-chief of one of the biggest and um, certainly the most honored magazine for lumberyards and pro dealers, and it was called Pro Sales. Uh, then for five of those 12 years, I also was editor-in-chief of the biggest uh, business-oriented magazine in the country for remodelers, and it was called Remodeling. Uh, it's probably the best thing that people know about it was something we called the cost versus value report, which dealers all over the United States used to um, uh, basically show that the prices they were charging people were, were reasonable. Uh, about Three years ago, I decided to create web analytics because I wanted to get even more involved in the construction supply community than I, I could uh, in journalism. And my job now is to help people spot the trends and the threats and the opportunities, those, those incoming missiles that they, that they're, because they're heads down, they haven't had a chance to notice that could uh, make their business or break their business. Well, Look, one thing's for certain, right? When you talk about uh, the Scud missiles, the trends, and certainly the last year that we've had, we are drowning in information, but we're also starved for knowledge, Craig, right? I mean, sifting through a lot of that, getting to the right resources to help make decisions. And 
you talk about cost versus values report. I almost think of like Kelly Blue Book for cars and helping to keep people honest. What do you think as the economy starts to reopen? One, where, where does the construction industry stand from your perspective? And what can we look forward to in the upcoming months? Some of the core trends uh, that you're beginning to see and write about. Well, in one sense, construction didn't get hurt as much as other industries by COVID. And if you think about it, a lot of construction takes place outdoors. People are relatively far apart from each other. Uh, the lumber yards are located, as I like to say, by the railroad tracks in the bad part of town, so nobody sees them. Uh, and as a result of those things, plus the, the decision by our government that construction was a vital industry in the United States, um, lumber yards stayed open. Hardware stores stayed open. Home centers like the Home Depot stayed open. And while there had been a lot of expectations right at the start of COVID that things were going to be horrible and people were making plans about what it would take if I have to shut down, instead they got smacked in the face and suddenly found themselves getting far more business than they ever thought. Uh, The result was a a boom in their business. Uh, there, it, there were some dealers that made 40, 50% more money last year than they had in previous years. The Home Depot made about 22% more money uh, than they'd had. Uh, people who were a little bit more pro-oriented and focused on, on, uh, con- on multifamily and commercial work got hurt because you know people were leaving the cities and, and multifamily was less interesting. But even some of them did well. Then toward the end of the year, after we've had the surge of activity, we began to see two things happen. One was that there was an absolute squeeze in the amount of product available, so prices shot up. Lumber, for example, ended up earlier this year costing three times as much as it did uh, just a couple of years ago, uh, the framing lumber, as an example. It was hard, uh, even even things like... um, Remember the outage we had in the big freeze in Texas? Well, that shut down resin plants and resin is used to make plywood. And so plywood prices shot up. But basically we've got shortages of all sorts. Uh, I just was looking at a number from the Census Bureau today and it said 65% of small businesses of all types in the United States are suffering shortages of needed products. Um, and sometimes because of the way the supply chain works, it can be a tiny thing that causes a big issue. I was just talking to a fellow who works at a window company, and he said that uh, when you want to make a double hung window in the United States, that's the windows with the panes up up and down that you can open, open and close vertically, there's about 100 parts that go into that window. And one of them is a tiny little spacer that sometimes goes between the double windows. Well, those are made in other parts of the world, uh, like China, and there is such a shortage of them, and it is so hard to get them, that one of the major suppliers of window materials in the United States is flying a jet over to China every day just to load themselves up with these tiny little plastic spacers. And then flying back and, you know, just, you know, the cost of flying that stuff is, is just astonishing. But that is symbolic of the, the challenges we're having. We're having tremendous price increases combined with tremendous product shortages. And on that note, too, right, a lot of times you hear, well, 
as a leader, whether it's of a small SMB or a Home Depot, right? Strategy is vital. Vision is critical. But ultimately, you can you went through logistics uh, and supply chain. And we have over fetishized in this country, in particular, just in time, for example, to the point where we don't have the necessary resilience built into that supply chain. We, as you, For all the reasons that you just mentioned, and the, the fact that I'll point it out again, 65% of small businesses in the U.S. suffering massive shortages, um, 3X for cost of lumber. I mean, these are eye-opening. When you think about some other highlights, so as we slowly start to come out of this and you see things like maybe more efficient technology to help us with our supply chain, uh, reshoring, right? Remote, certainly remote work sites, mobile access, um, even, even a lot around green and sustainability. And we can get to that a little bit later. But uh, if you had to hone in on those, what are some of the things that you're seeing being put in place uh, to help alleviate? And you, you, you talked about a few, but maybe some of these top trends to help alleviate and prepare not only this country, but that global supply chain. Well, there's nothing like a crisis to spur the imagination. Uh, and one of the things that happened for building material dealers is that a lot of stuff that they had talked about doing, uh, when the COVID struck, they suddenly found themselves needing to do. A good example of this is uh, a phrase you, you probably know about, BOPUS, buy online, pick up in store. Uh, you know, nobody really had made a big deal about that in the construction supply business. And suddenly they were offering curbside service. Uh, there were a lot of building material dealers who hadn't been paying much attention to their websites. They were brochureware and they were suddenly starting to call their uh, tech companies and saying, how do I turn on my e-commerce capabilities? Uh, and, 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 you know, slowly working their way that way. Um, that we've one of the most interesting developments that's just happened in the past week was uh, one involving Builders First Source, which is the biggest full service uh, construction supply company in the United States, $12, 13000000000 billion. They just bought a software company uh, because the software that's being provided by this particular company can be used in a variety of ways, all of which figure into where Builders First Source wants to go. So they decided, well, you know, I like it so much, I'm gonna buy the company, like, like the old razor blade commercial goes. Uh, so technology is definitely working its way into the system, but I should add that construction supply companies historically have been at the tail end of construction, uh, of, of tech advances, even to this day, something on the order of 70, 75% of all the biggest dealers in the country spend no more than 1% of their revenues on technology. Now, if you compare that with, let's say a hospital that spends 5%, a, a, a bank might spend 10% of its revenue on technological advances, 1% for dealers. Well, I mean, staggering, when you, when you look at the big picture and you look at averages, right, in terms of what companies invest in R&D, and typically it is in technology innovation, it's usually around that 5 to 10%, depending on the industry. 1% uh, of revenues on technologies is certainly intriguing, a bit of uh, a bit eye-opening. And then what you said, too, I just want to highlight the trend around buy online, pick up in store. And what that means for a lot of the companies, uh, particularly these big, let's call them, you know, premier distributors, 
uh, resellers that operate counters that people depend on, right? I mean, these businesses day in and day out, they need to go there and get those products. And what that can do for a, a manufacturer supplier, if you're, if you don't have your, your stuff there, your run rate, your flow goods, it, it, they'll go somewhere else. And like you said earlier in the podcast, I mean, it's impacting everything from candy bars. When you go into a Dwayne Reed or a CVS, you don't even see the, the candy bars. There are a lot of quality improvement to your point about technology really just comes through simplification, whether that's design, uh, manufacturing, layout, and then the processes and procedures. As you, you know, as you look at that and, you, and you've talked a, a little bit about the acceleration of technology adoption and how that is starting to change the way that material suppliers do their sales, how would you then address this? If you look at the skyrocketing of prices in building materials, you know, the, the, the finances of these companies, right, especially across the supply chain, you know, how are they able to operate, buck this trend and then enhance the odds of their um, success? What things are you seeing for these companies to shore up their finances? Well, the the fact that people are spending more for buying lumber and, and buying other materials certainly brings more cash in the door. One of the challenges for most construction supply companies is that um, they basically let you buy on credit. You know, we'll give you the product now, you pay me the bill in 30 days, you pay me the bill in 60 days. Uh, so as a result, most of the contractor customers that dealers have are on, on some sort of credit line. And one of the biggest trends that we've seen in this past uh, six to eight months has been that building material dealers have had to look at their credit lines that they're offering people. Um, if you take all the lumber and materials that are needed to frame a house, that's referred to as a framing package. And let's say in the old days, you were building a house and your framing package was $30,000 and you had a $100,000 credit limit, you could build three houses. Well, now, if it costs $60,000 for a framing package, that be, and that means you can only build one and two thirds houses unless you can get your credit limit extended. And that's what's going on with a lot of dealers right now. They're spending a huge amount of time looking at their customers and trying to decide whether they can extend more credit to them. And of course, they have to go to the bank in turn and say, can you give me more credit so that I can give them more credit? So there's, there's a bit of a daisy chain issue that's, that, that's working out in terms of finance. At the same time, there's a danger. And the danger is, is that a lot of contractors are really good at building things and really bad at business. Something on the order of one out of every eight remodelers with payroll goes out of business in any given year and becomes, uh, either they go out of business or they just become a sole proprietor. They, they stop having payroll. For a, um, a home builder, it's about one out of nine. And because of that, uh, and because of the fact that actually the number of remodeling companies in this country hasn't gone down, what that means is that every year, one eighth of, your, of the total remodeling population leaves and one eighth of the population comes in. So every year you have a whole new group of kindergartners who don't know how to manage business. At the, you, know, they're, they're, you, you hear again and again and again that remodelers use the next job to pay for the previous job. And, and if that next job gets slowed down or hurt in some way, they get hurt too. Now, let me go one step further. That, that's a challenge right now, aside from the, uh, the credit. 
Because of delays in, um, in the arrival of packages, if, if, for example, cabinets don't arrive when they're supposed to, and you're of the philosophy that you can't start a project until you have the cabinets in your shop ready to install, then you got to wait. And I was talking recently with a group of kitchen and bath designers who have that philosophy, and they were all saying, well, now we have to wait four to six weeks longer than we used to to get the cabinets. What am I going to do in the meantime? I don't have any money coming in. And so once again, going back to that dealer, how do you give them credit when theoretically you're basing it on their expected cash flow, except every week because of a delay, their cash flow gets affected? It's, it's a conundrum. I forgot who said it. I remember reading a quote once that, you know, be wary of the little expenses. A small leak can sink a great ship. Uh, we're talking about, obviously, as you stated here, you know, these remodelers and home builders, I'm assuming there are varying sizes, but these statistics, you know, uh, one out of nine home builders, uh, one eighth of, of ultimately the remodeling population leaves and churns each year. That I would imagine on paper, uh, massive, you know, it's a massive number. And you, like you said, you've got new people coming in, you kind of lose that tacit knowledge as well, or it gets repurposed maybe to other states, maybe becoming a cog in a much bigger wheel. Uh, so that is certainly something that's certainly something to keep an eye on. I mean, these are powerful statistics and numbers that you're throwing out there uh, that directly correlate to the environment we're in. So appreciate you sharing those. I think it provides great perspective to our audience. Um, going, a step, going even a step further, I mean, this is dominating the new sources and you with your, with your background in journalism and doing a lot of diligence probably can speak to this a bit more um, a lot of people have questions about the boom in construction projects. We've heard a lot of different numbers being floated about the bipartisan infrastructure bill. We need to we need to build back this country in a lot of different ways, as you know, living overseas from from airports, uh, bridges, homes, apartment buildings. Obviously, a tragedy what happened in uh, in Florida uh, recently. But giving Americans reliable access to, to what's happening. What are you What are you hearing? Um, what numbers from an investment perspective and what could that mean for this, uh, this construction community to, to get engaged on that? Well, one of the things that uh, while we've been having all these crises and all these challenges, um, people have continued having babies. People have continued getting married. And at the same time, we have continued to build fewer houses than the American population needs. In essence, we have been underbuilding in this country since about the since the, since the start of this millennium, since 2000. Uh, there are various statistics as to how many homes we really need in order to meet the demand. Uh, upwards of five million homes we're short on, partly because we tear down a lot of homes and the like. Um, and it's also in part because the millennials are the biggest population and now actually the bigger population group, bigger than the, um, the baby boomers. So uh, they took their time getting married. Uh, they took their time having children, but by God, you know, they, they, they want to get out of those apartments downtown and they want to get out to where there's some grass and where they can, you know, put the kids out to play and, and, and not, not have them scream all the time. Uh, so you have that kind of demand at the same time, because of COVID, uh, also, because of the ability to work from home, do a lot of other things, we're having a shift in what people expect from a home. Um, they're expecting to, uh, for example, be able to work from home more often 
And consequently, that means they can live a little further out from the office. They can uh, have a slightly bigger home. They can maybe live in the suburbs or the exurbs. Uh, you know, I, I believe you live in New York City. And if you talk to building material dealers in Connecticut, they've got people who maybe were building 30 homes a year in rural Connecticut, and now they're building 75. You know, that kind of demand. New Jersey has been the greatest beneficiary of, of COVID <laughs> probably of any, of any state in the country, you know, because of, because of land and everything else. So what I'm leading to is, is that uh, we have shortages now in part because we had this hiccup in the economy, the, the COVID shutdown. At the same time, we're, we have demand because we have demand. And it's going to just keep on going for quite a while. Uh, it's going to keep us having shortages for a while. But even after that, even after we get our, our, our ducks in a row with regard to uh, getting ships in from China and the like, we're still going to have an underbuilt nation. And there's going to be more demand that will just keep things going for, for a long time to come. And, and to that point, right? Well, first of all, again, I have to emphasize what you said. Uh, underbuilding since the start of the, the millennia and we're seeing a shortage of 5 million homes. I can attest to it personally. Yes, we, we shoot our, our podcast from Manhattan here where I am. Um, I've seen those trends. It's intriguing to see who's going to come back and who remains outside. But one thing is certain, um, outside of certain industries, it's not necessary to be in the office every day, right? In many cases. So that means you have space that is consolidated. And, and it'll be, we're watching it closely to see how it evolves Certainly, there's a bunch of interesting projects, but you look at the skyline in New Jersey and what's happening there, um, Connecticut, tons of builds, to your point, spot on. And to conclude, I guess, this first half of our discussion together, um, really, Craig, eye-opening stuff, construction suppliers now are preparing, right, to balance the limitations caused by these high prices and the shortages uh, in material supplies and the growing demand. That is occurring during this boom. And I envision it, and, and we talk about, we'll talk about it more in the second session, the EV boom. And I've seen numbers from 175 billion fluctuating about building an electric vehicle network. There'll be a lot of opportunities there as we try to you know, get carbon neutrality. But how are these suppliers, how, how are they going to have to prepare and put a game plan, a strategic plan in place to, to meet this very delicate balance? Well, several things are going on. One is to try to live a little bit more in the moment. Uh, and by in the moment, I mean, you pay the price based on whatever the price is at that time. Uh, it, it, there have been cases in which historically a lumberyard was willing to guarantee the price of what they were selling for 30 days. Now they're only guaranteeing it for seven days. On the builder side, it used to be quite common uh, to uh, guarantee a price for a product and say, you know, okay, I'm uh, to, to pre-sell a home that costs three hundred fifty thousand dollars. Well, now they may pre-sell the home, but they'll say, you know, we can't we can't be sure the price will be three hundred fifty thousand because we don't know what the material costs will be. So they put in escalation clauses and the like. Uh, theoretically, if the prices of lumber go down. The price of the goods go down too, but we shall we shall see whether whether businesses go that far as well. Um, but that 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 
the, one of the other philosophies is that companies in many ways in the past used to try to time their purchases. They used to try to follow the troughs and swells of, of lumber pricing, buy low, sell high. I think now they're less concerned about buying low and selling high and just absolutely making sure they've got product to sell. And that means whatever the product price is, that's the product price. And I think builders are going to be the same way. And for many parts of the construction industry, that's, that's where things are heading. Well, Craig, hopefully we're going to continue heading this conversation in, in a very positive direction, which we've been going. Uh, the first half, as I said, this was a discussion with Craig Webb looking at building a resilient construction supply chain post-pandemic. Uh, and we'll be onward momentarily to the next discussion, which will be on future-proofing your construction business. So stay tuned. Talk to you soon. Thanks. Jason, back again, host of the Blue Tape Podcast, where we bring together industry experts and community members to talk about all the important issues in the construction industry. This is a two-part podcast. So if you missed the first one, there's a link below that you can click into to understand our initial discussion with Craig Webb, who's joining us again. He's the founder of Web Analytics back in uh, September 2018. In our first discussion, uh, Craig and I talked about building a resilient construction supply chain post-pandemic. Uh, and Craig, there were some eye-opening statistics, uh, I think, for all of us that added a ton of value and helped really pave the way for this next discussion. And, you know, as we begin and look at future-proofing, what it takes to future-proof uh, your construction business, uh, I, I'd like to open with a quote here. It's not the beauty of a building you should look at. It's the construction of the foundation that will stand the test of time. And I say that because foundation is a big deal, because whatever you're implementing today, regardless if it's hardware or software, the foundational elements are absolutely critical to future-proofing and uh, improving, really reducing the variance and variability in the process. So I'd like to begin this discussion. If you can, you know, we know what we can expect for, for businesses in the supply chain and construction. We talked about that in episode one, but what are the main tendencies you're seeing uh, as the economy reactivates when it comes to building and more importantly, uh, project development, Craig? Well, I would say that in some ways we've had a back to basics movement that's been going on here. Whenever you have turbulent seas, uh, making sure that you're you've battened down the hatches and and, and have processes in place uh, truly uh, matter a great deal. I think that uh, that on the uh, builder and remodeling side, uh, they are being reminded again and again that uh, cash is king. Uh, having cash flow that you can that can help you keep going for months at a time really matters. That um, there is no real benefit in being a loss leader <laughs> because you want every project to make money, uh, and and so consequently, just thinking about those basic issues help you avoid being those uh, one out of nine companies that I talked about earlier that that go out of business every year. On the dealer side. I think that there is much more of a discussion these days about uh, figuring what really is most important, which is having product to sell. Uh, the price that you have it to sell at, it, there, there's a little less gamesmanship going on there and a lot more work on, on making sure that they can meet their customers' needs and communicate with them regularly so that everybody in the supply chain knows what's happening. 
Yeah, and, and this, obviously the supply chain that we talked about in the first episode is quite complex. Um, it's clearly a turbulent environment right now and like what we've seen in a long time. If you look at the landscape, right, clearly you've got a lot of these small, uh, a lot of minority women-owned contractors that are out there looking to make an impact, looking to expand and work on more projects. We touched on in the last call a little bit about the upcoming infrastructure uh, bill, and, and there'll be a lot of folks that want to get engaged and support there. And then you've got big general contractors, builders, and more, let's, let's call them electrical contractors and mechanicals that are focused within different regions, Craig. Um, when you think about this, right, which ones are here to stay from a contractor and builder perspective? Uh, you know, which ones might struggle? And how can they continue to adapt their business model to ensure that they can you know, ride this wave and, and profit uh, substantially and be able to hire and do all the things that a business would, would hope to do as having a payroll and not becoming the statistics that you talked about in the prior episode? Right. I would say that from a macroeconomic point of view, uh, uh, thinking about the small remodeler and builder, um, it is the uh, it, it 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 it's the remodeling and the repair and replacement work that probably has the greatest potential right now. In part because we have the greatest labor shortages in 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 that group, uh, and uh, the average home, uh, the median age of a home in America now is thirty nine years old, which means. Uh, that home probably dates back to the 1970s, 1980s, and has been pointed out to me by a number of people. We built a lot of really lousy homes in the 1970s. Uh, we, back then, we were building 2 million homes for all the baby boomers, and we were just putting them up as fast as we could. And they didn't think much about energy efficiency. They didn't think much about layout. They didn't think about uh, uh, making them tight uh, and, and the like. So consequently, there's a lot of work that needs to be done. There are some, uh, second, also the baby boomers have more money than any other group. And if they're going to stay in their homes because they want to be near their grandchildren who are in the area, rather than go to Del Boca Vista down in Florida or something, then consequently, um, they're going to be spending money on fixing up their houses. So it's their forever house. Second group uh, to that is the new home construction market. Uh, the challenge there has more to do with the fact that uh, we have a shortage of affordable housing in this country, and there are a million reasons why we have an affordable housing challenge, but it's not going to go away anytime soon. Um, if you are a builder or a remodeler, uh, or if you are a uh, if you are a small builder, um, especially if you're in a rural area or an exurb or a suburban area and you've got some land, I think you've got some good opportunities. If you're a production builder, um, well, you should really be doing well right now because you're the kind of person who can afford you know, to, to handle the, the slings and arrows of economic misfortune. Finally, you get to the much bigger projects, the multifamily projects and the commercial projects. Both of those have been hurt by COVID, and most predictions I see indicate that they will remain hurt by uh, for for many years to come because of the work from home movement, because of the notion that people are wanting to move to the suburbs to a single family detached house, where the uh, possibility of you know catching a virus is reduced. So if you focus on those areas. Um, You'll there are still will there still will be work, but 
but maybe not quite as much as you're used to. Um, and in, in some ways, the infrastructure bill that you were talking about, as well as some other things that they're talking about over at HUD, may 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 save your bacon, you know, on that front. Uh, not only that, but also as long as we continue to have a shortage of laborers on all of these types of projects, if you're into this business, you've got a much better chance of being in demand and having people ring your phone than um, other businesses. Yeah, it almost comes down to being able to control and manage the influx of opportunities and making sure that you're putting uh, aligning resources and capabilities around the things that are going to you know, yield the best the best upside for the company and allow for expansion. And a couple of points there. I think I was reading, I think it was in Barron's, which is a Dow Jones company, like the Wall Street Journal, where you spent, uh, we spent some time uh, working on some engagements. I think baby boomers hold about $2.6 trillion uh, in buying power. Uh, it's, a, it's a fascinating statistic, obviously, and one of the wealthiest uh, generations to date, I believe. So that will play a role, especially when you talk about the trend uh, out to the suburbs and buying second homes, third homes, right? If, if you've been a diligent saver uh, over the years and, and have access to a lower interest rate environment, it's certainly favorable there. And, and we're seeing more of it. Uh, what also is, again, you know, the median age of a home in America, 39 years old. So didn't know that statistic. That is something to keep in mind. And, and obviously, it'll be, I'm very curious to see how home prices continue to move and fluctuate. I think I read that the average home price now uh, across the country is $370,000. Uh, so, so there's a lot of things. And remodeling, repair, replace, uh, clearly big potential there, which you've highlighted. Now, to accelerate and adapt towards these changes that you've talked about, any technologies you've highlighted, and this can range from you know technologies that can support with material takeoffs and helping to estimate uh, it could be cloud, you know, cloud computing that can help with efficiency and, and other types of, you know, project management or collaboration. But be great, Craig, to get your perspective on the technologies that could be leveraged and implemented to maximize the upside, particularly for these remodelers and repair companies. Well, in the beginning, there was a carpenter's pencil and a piece of paper. Not a bad thing, by the way. I'm still writing everything down myself. Yeah. Well, in which they were they were doing all their calculations, writing them on two by fours. Uh, to that, we have slowly over time done some pretty astonishing things with regard to technology. Um, much of it made available as mobile computing and mobile devices work their way in. Um, seeing your young face uh, probably tells me that you never had a Palm Pilot in your in your life. <laughs> may not even know what a Palm Pilot was, but when it came out, it was revolutionary. Um, the uh, all of the things you talked about better better estimating software, better uh, material takeoff software, better design software, better communications, uh, better ways to uh, handle things like uh, like your HR costs and the like. Uh, easier ways to do all this on a smartphone. All of those things are coming along. To those, I also would add drones uh, and vehicles that uh, basically serve as your base station, you know, with their own, with their own Wi-Fi systems and the like. Um, you know, we're at the point now where true portability is, is becoming possible. And you can have conversations now that uh, with people and interactions with people 
that make you so much more efficient than you used to be. And that's a really vital thing because um, I, <laughs> there's one group I deal with and they talk about um, how, uh, what, 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 what people should aspire to in remodeling. And one of the things they say you should aspire to remodel, to, to, to aspire to in remodeling that most people are, fail to do is to work less than 55 hours a week. You know, so, you know, in other words, a 12 hour day is the norm in your business or an 11 hour day is the norm in your business. Um, uh, and so consequently, a lot of the technology we're seeing also is going to make it possible for people to have a real life. Yeah. I mean, conversation to your point too, the, the tools in place. I mean, we have in a perfect world, I, I'd love to be sitting live with you having this dynamic and this discussion. Obviously we're aware of, there's a lot of, it's just more efficient all the way around, but certainly having a good dialogue and conversation, building that rapport. And there are some incredible tools out there. And, and Zoom clearly is yeah. one of them. Let me, let me, if I may interrupt, let me give yeah. you an example of something that I'm seeing happen more and more often that, that COVID helped make possible and, and, and Zoom helped make possible. And that is the, uh, the kitchen consult. Uh, it used to be very common that if you were a kitchen and bath designer, you would work on a design and then drive to the customer's home and sit there at their kitchen table and work with them on the design. And they would look at your laptop and say they'd like to have this or they'd like to have a little bit of that. And by the time you got done, you as the consultant and the designer would maybe go out to one person a night. Well, now, with the, because people are used to Zoom, because people are much more used to seeing things pop up on their screen, you as the designer can have maybe two meetings a night, maybe even three meetings in a night, you know, an hour with each customer, that sort of thing. Uh, and and you're you're using the software to show them things on the screen just like you were before, except they, they maybe they're broadcasting it to the, to their big TV set. And we've got higher definition systems and better better software, so they can get a better idea of what's what's going on uh, and what's available. Those are all examples of of how technology is is going to be making things a little bit easier and a little faster in the future. Uh, the, the idea of the kitchen consult and how technology is accelerated is great. And look, at the end of the day, uh, we know how important body language is. It's a powerful tool. Uh, body language has been there even before, before speech. And a lot of what you understand or pull out of a conversation is read through uh, the body. That's certainly something I think that you know, we, we may be missing in certain cases. Definitely. It's an element that I know in the construction space, as you kind of have that engagement, have those discussions are good. But I think ultimately the acceleration to these tools is, a, is undoubtedly a net positive in what it allows, what we're able and, 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 and to do. Yeah, and, and it could be argued that um, maybe what the Zoom call is for is the second meeting, sure. the third meeting, whereas the first meeting is still in person. And you get, their, you, you get their body language, you get their personality, you make that personal connection because they've come into the store. But then when you're trying to refine things, get to the next level, make a decision about, you know, what kind of, what kind of cabinet style you want to have. Maybe because you've already got that relationship going, you can use that. You can use it uh, online. 
Yeah, you want to build. I, I agree with you 100%. If you can have that first meeting in person, the rest predominantly, right, you build that bridge. Uh, and then all the subsequent conversations essentially enrich the overall understanding and improve that the, the trust and the bond that is formed between um, the, the individuals that are engaged. So what you hit on is, is superb. And I, I've seen it more and more, the different drones that are engaged, especially here in New York City. Uh, when I've walked by or been on some construction job sites, you see some of those drones. I'm very eager. I know our community is eager uh, to learn more about them and hear about some of the new technologies coming. Um, as we approach, Craig, kind of the last couple of items of our discussion, right, we really want to focus here on, again, challenges and solutions that builders and contractors in particular are facing in this environment. We've talked and honed in on uh, a lot of different elements, and I'm sure we're going to have some overlap. But, you know, kind of to close out, if you could hit on what you're seeing as those top couple of challenges for the builders and contractors, uh, and then we'll subsequently glide into and close out with recommended solutions, I think that would be a powerful and poignant way uh, to leave our audience with this, with these two sessions we've had. I would say the biggest issue that uh, remodelers and small builders face right now is the herky-jerky nature of what they do. The, the, it's almost like being in a, in, a, in a traffic jam where you, you speed up and then you suddenly stop and you don't know when you're going to start again and, and, and the like. Uh, you know, it wastes gas, it, it, it wastes time, it, 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 you, your, your attention gets hurt. For a, a remodeler or small builder, the, the, the impact of this comes through things like uh, your cash flow. If you don't know when your check is going to arrive because it's dependent on your achieving certain parts of the job, finishing certain parts of the job, then, then you get hurt. Uh, it, it also uh, affects your ability to buy. And, and if you have poor communications with your suppliers, you may get surprised. I, I will tell you, frankly, the, the dealers get surprised. Uh, for them, every delivery is like Forrest Gump's box of chocolates. They, they, they ordered something, but they don't know what's going to be in the box until they get, they get it. And so consequently, there's a, if you're not having good uh, close ties with your supplier, uh, then that's going to be a challenge too. So it's that herky-jerky nature of life right now that I think is the biggest challenge they're facing. Yeah, when I hear herky-jerky, I think like puzzle, ambiguity, uh, lacking clarity. And the, the interesting thing, Craig, a lot of times is the solution often turns out to be a beautiful one, especially in this space, right? When you see the finished product. Uh, and I know certainly haven't been engaged and looking at some of these projects across the country that tends to be the result um, from a closing perspective. So you mentioned kind of the nature uh, uncertainties around cash flows, definitely. So again, technology that comes that can come in there that would be prevalent and catch the eye and allow people to seamlessly transact their their day to day business. H how can they overcome the challenges? And where are some places people can look in this industry in this space? to get those solutions. And I certainly want to use this as an opportunity, again, to highlight what you're doing at Web Analytics, some of the stuff that is coming on the horizon and pre-existing uh, documentation and communications that people in our network should be looking at to help them achieve these solutions. Well, when it comes to running a business, uh, 
one of my favorite publications for the, the remodeling community is something called the Journal of Light Construction. Uh, it's a publication that's put out uh, by, by the same people that, that used to publish my, my Lumberyard magazine. Uh, and it has a phenomenal discussion forum. They just did a survey of several hundred builders and remodelers asking them some of the same questions that you just asked me. So, you know, to get a to get a view from your community as to how you're solving these problems, both online and in print, I, I'd say the Journal of Light Construction is a good way to go. There are roundtables and groups you can join. Uh, Remodelers Advantage is one that I've been a big fan of. There also is something called the Certified Contractors Network, which is more for the um, community that does uh, roofing and, and, and window replacement and siding replacement. Uh, that's, that's got its own group. Uh, frequently, your vendors can help you too. Like, let's say, for example, you are a company that installs James Hardy siding, uh, which is a type of fiber cement siding. You know, if you buy enough of it, they invite you to a conference. They, they provide information to you. So sometimes going to your vendor is, is good. And then finally, I would say, call on your dealer. You know, the, the, the dealer has usually been around there for, for, for donkey's years. They've been through these things. Uh, having good communications with your dealer, uh, both in, 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 in terms of telephone calls, sometimes in person, and, and ultimately through just text messaging, is, is a great way to, to really keep up and, and keep warned. I said uh, on the first podcast, my, my job is to talk about trends and threats and opportunities. And I suppose in this case, what we've been going through lately is a lot of threats to your, your business flow. Uh, if you can use these other things and be forewarned, be forewarned, you're in better shape than you would be otherwise. Oh, appreciate it. We, we need desperately, right? The amber light is on in many instances, more so than ever before. There's a lot of uh, red flags that can easily be flipped to green with the right diligence, the right guidance. You, know, you talked about the Journal of Light Construction. Certainly calling on your dealer is valuable. And I encourage everybody in our community, right, to check out web, webb-analytics.com. We'll obviously be putting uh, some links in there so you can learn a little bit more about uh, Craig and the great work he's doing and the now available, I believe, LBM uh, Next Great Benchmark uh, you know, documentation. I think it's a 40-page report that essentially breaks down some of the key numbers that we talked about in these podcasts and allows you to really uh, dive in and do the, the necessary analysis and diligence. So, Craig, uh, we are, the entire Blue Tape community is sincerely uh, grateful. You spent a lot of time with us today. It was certainly, for me personally, very beneficial and uh, insightful and wishing you all the best and continue, you know, uh, your generosity, your thoughtfulness, much appreciated. I look forward to doing this again with you and hopefully in person, if not, uh, as you've said and made clear, we've got plenty of great digital tools to have a big impact for our community. So thank you for your time, Craig. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening. And don't forget to subscribe for more episodes like this. For more information on Construction Pals podcasts and Blue Tape, please visit bluetape.com.